Austin Ivory, you are an author of biographies of Pope Francis, the great reformer Francis and the making of a radical pope, and then Wounded Shepherd, Pope Francis and his struggle to convert the Catholic Church. You have also written, your latest one is the Let Us Dream, which you did in conversation with him. I mean, I would say that The Great Reformer and Wounded Shepherd are both biographies. Uh, The first is about his life before he became Pope. Wounded Shepherd is really about the pontificate. The third book you mentioned, Let Us Dream, which came out at the end of 2020, was a book that the Pope and I produced together. I mean, it's his book, but I helped him put it together. So it's not a biography as such. It is him speaking to to the world about the pandemic. Yes, that's right. And... and, uh, very interesting things that he's saying within that doesn't pull any punches and well worth reading. Also, you are involved in the Synod. You've been involved in England and Wales in the Synod process there and also in Rome itself. Mm. And what would be very interesting if you would, maybe for people who've even been involved in parts of it in their parish level, I don't think they're fully... Uh, clued in, I wasn't myself, into exactly the different stages and how they're working. So it would be great if you would, maybe from, you met in your parishes and you did whatever the parish set up for feedback, then it went to would you? It went yeah. to the local place. Would you fill that sure. out for us, Austin? <clears throat> I mean, I can understand why people are a bit perplexed because it is actually a massive process, a complex process, a global process. It's the biggest church event process that there has been since the Second Vatican Council. And in many ways, it's a much bigger process than the Second Vatican Council because it involves all the local churches, as we know, those of us who have joined in synod conversations at diocesan and parish level. Um, so, And the stages of it have been, in a way, worked out kind of on the hoof. There's been an element of, of improvisation because this has never been done before. But the process is now pretty clear. So it opened in October 2021 with an invitation to all the local churches to reflect on the questions that, that had been sent them by the Synod Secretariat in Rome. And the topic, of course, is communion, participation and mission and how the church can become more synodal. And we'll talk about that in a minute, what, what that means, but how it can become more synodal in its way of being. So all kinds of questions related to, to participation and the role of people and the way authority is exercised. And people came together, they discussed, and then each local church, each bishop's conference produced a national synthesis. Mm-hmm. And that had to be in to the Rome Secretariat by August uh, this year. And then in September, uh, a, a number of us gathered, there were about 26 of us gathered in Frascati, just outside Rome, to look at All of those bishops' conference reports from across the world, there are 114 of them, each one of at least 10 pages. It was quite a big operation. And our task was to produce from that a synthesis of what the people of God have been saying. So that document, which we produced and and is just now come out, is called The Document for the Continental Stage. And it was released in Rome on the 27th of October. That document now comes back to the local churches and... We're being asked to reflect on it, all of us, to reflect on it. And then, uh, for the next couple of months, what has resonated with us in this document? How do we respond to it? And then each local church will send a delegation to a regional assembly. Now, there are five continents and two regions. In our case, in the case of Europe, it's going to be in Prague in early February, uh, 5th to the 12th of February. And the invitation is for all the bishops' conferences to send, first of all, the president of the bishops' conference or his delegate. Mm -hmm. 
and then three others. And now it hasn't not specified who they'll be, but the assumption is that'll be a mixture of lay people, religious. You know, it should be representative in some of the people of God. Each of the Europe, each of the continental assemblies, in our case the European, deliberates and produces a document. The seven documents that arises from each of those continental assemblies are then sent to Rome, and are in turn synthesised, and then become the basis of the first of what are, will be two synods of bishops in Rome. So the first one will be in October, this October 2020, uh, sorry, October 2023, we're talking mm-hmm. about next year now. Uh, and uh, in October 2023, the, uh, the synthesis of, of all the regional documents, which is the working document, uh, will, and, then, and then that document will be worked on. And then there's a whole year mm-hmm. before then the conclusion of the synod, which will be in October 2024, with another synod of bishops. So the, the comparison in this last stage is with the Synod on the Family, which you may remember took place in October 2014 and then in October 2015. It was a two-part Synod. Um, so we're really talking here now about a three-year process, so October 21 to October 2024. Uh, and the idea is to give, I mean, because very, very important issues have been raised in the first stage, questions that are going to take a lot of discussion, a lot of discernment. You know, the Pope has wanted to give this time and really wants people to engage with it and i think that's why we've got this longer horizon yeah because did that do you think arise also out of the meeting that you were at where you were synthesizing the material that had come from all the different places you were doing that in Frascati. so tell me about that process and how that worked because i suppose you know there are people who've been suspicious and even at a national level would say well have our voices been put in and can we trust the people and if they have an agenda they might even unconscious bias didn't put that in left that out so can you tell me about your experience of doing that because it's great to hear it firsthand so i was involved in the synthesis in england and wales and our job was to take, uh, is it 23, 26 dioceses, diocesan reports, as you did in Ireland. So each diocese produced a report and a national synthesis was produced. And of course, before that process, I'd had some understanding of how it works from having been in Rome and talked to people. But until you actually do it, it is actually fascinating. You know, how do I possibly gather all of this, this together? How am I going to be faithful to what I've heard? So I had some experience of doing it before I arrived in Frascati. But then I thought, gosh, how do we do this? You know, from across the world, when you've got such incredible different contexts, and we're talking about you know, really about a global process, almost all, I think only two bishops' conferences didn't put in uh, reports, and they were very small countries. So we're talking about a massive level of participation. And how are we going to do this? And the answer is that we were, it took place over 12 days, and the first few days was all about listening to what we'd heard. And what comes out of the documents that the people are saying, which is consistent? What is the thing that, that arises, uh, not out of all the documents, because that's impossible, but most? Where is the consensus? And when you start to, to draw these things out, you begin to realise that actually th- important things are happening in the church, because there is a kind of consensus about it. And then, of course, the other thing you become aware of are some of the differences and the contrast and the disagreements. And so what you're doing is you're trying to be faithful to what you've heard. And for me, the really fascinating thing was how we had to keep going. And they kept saying to us, go back to the documents. You know, our job was not to comment, extrapolate, you know, produce theological commentary. And believe me, I think some of us, particularly the more theological among us, you know, I think that was quite hard for them. I think as a writer, frankly, it was easier for me mm. because I'm used to, in a way, putting myself in the shoes of the others. And you know what it is to report. You try and be faithful. Mm. But they kept saying, look, our job here is to represent 
what we've heard, not invent it, but represent it. We did it in lots of different ways. We, we formed ourselves into groups, divided by sometimes by uh, gender, so it was sometimes men and uh, women, sometimes by ecclesial status. One day I was in a group of lay people, another day I was in a group of Europeans. So you're applying these different lenses. You're looking for these consensuses. You're also looking for the minority voices, which again might be consistent over the reports, but tend to get left out because they're not that strong. Because sometimes those are prophetic voices as well. So you're trying to be attentive to all these things. So that was the first few days. And then the last few days, we were actually doing the drafting of the document, which was a very, very complex process because of the number of people involved. We had two people who were essentially assigned with being editors of the text. And it was in both English and Italian. And, and, and we had to keep the two documents, you know, as living text, parallel text. It, 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 there was a complexity to it. And I think very little time. It felt like a race against time. But what was beautiful was how actually, and I think, you know, we've seen this in the document, uh, how the people are allowed to speak. It's packed with quotes, and the quotes stand for other quotes. In other words, they're representative in some way. We tried to pick out voices that were, were speaking for others, but often nailed things in a particular way. Or a bit like when you, you, know, you choose a quote in a news report, you go, OK, this really nails it. So there's a lot of that going on. And then I think the fascinating thing that emerged from the process, which is very much in the document, which is this vision of, as it says in Isaiah, enlarge your tent. The church is a tent of meeting where you've got the tabernacle at the heart of it. But it needs to be a bigger space. It needs to be more capacious, more flexible. And this idea which the document draws out that this is a tent that has to be firmly rooted in with pegs. But on the other hand, you can lift those pegs and move them if you need to to accommodate a larger tent. So how do we create a space which is better capable of embracing diversity, plurality, difference? How can we better hold things in tension? How can we become more participatory and inclusive? And I think all these are responses, if we're to say, talk about what the Spirit is doing in all of this. The Spirit, in some way, through these various crises that we've had in the church, you know, crises of authority, crises of abuse, there's something that, that we're being called to embrace here. There's a grace on offer in these crises, which is to say, are we being invited to do something a bit different? to operate differently as a church. Now, I think people have read that document and they've said, well, actually, this is the vision of Vatican II. And I think it is. In that sense, it's not new. But it does feel new because it's about the implementation or putting concrete form on that vision in the Second Vatican Council of the Church as people of God. That's interesting, isn't it? Because even those three words that you used at the start about mission and participation, they are Vatican II phrases, but they don't use the term synodality. So it's interesting that... Synodality is what has come out of that vision, which many people, many commentators would feel has been maybe disrupted. Others say, no, it's just been developed. But you seeing this in the actual trajectory of Vatican II being implemented. Yeah, I mean, the great gift of Pope Francis is to have come in with an experience of synodality from the Latin American church. The Latin American church is the church in the world that has most developed synodality. It's way ahead of the rest of us. And, of course, it's a Latin American Jesuit. <laughs> the Jesuits, again, with, are familiar with these processes. of, of yeah. God. It's no accident that it should be a Latin American Jesuit that does this. But the great gift of Francis is to say, yeah, OK, we've had all these debates about collegiality, the role of the bishop and central. Now is the moment where we put flesh on what's in Lumen Gentium, the church as the people of God, a church in which actually all the baptised take part, and that we have processes of decision-making that involve everybody, even though, of course... 
Ultimately, the ones in authority take the decisions, but the making of those decisions must involve us all, just as in Acts of the Apostles. So I think what you're getting here is a bold implementation of what Paul VI intuited when he reinstituted the Synod of Bishops in the 1960s. It has been an institution that has, has been developing since then, but it's taken Francis to really kind of put the pedal on the floor. And the way that he's done it is to say that synodality is not just synods of bishops. Synodality is a way of being, a way of operating, a way of being church that we're invited to embrace at every level, you know, parish, diocese, deanery, bishops' conference, and indeed region, because that's one of the other gifts of this process is the way the continents have emerged as kind of decision-making and discernment bodies. Uh, So I I would say it's the implementation of the vision after many years of, might say, hesitancy Mm -hmm. in that direction. The person who designed the process you were involved in is also a Jesuit. Was that significant? Remind me of his name. Yeah, so Giacomo Costa uh, was the one who really designed the process that we followed in Frascati. And Giacomo is an Italian Jesuit in his uh, 50s, a wonderful guy. And he's really brilliant at understanding these processes. And, and this is, I think, what the Jesuits would call, the Jesuits have been calling, uh, processes of decision-making in common, or communitarian apostolic discernment, to use the jargon phrase, which, of course, the society has itself been embracing, hasn't it, in the last years, and under the Superior General, Father Arturo Sosa, there's a call for the society to embrace this way of being. So it's, yeah. it's all out there. For you personally, because you've been involved in a lot of these things... Uh, what did it mean for you to be involved in that strand of the process? And a follow-up question, do you think that your experience in that throws light on why it may have been extended for another year because it was supposed to be 2023 and now it's 2024? Yeah, well, just for me personally, uh, it's just been an enormous privilege. I mean, you know, as somebody who's tried to document the significance of this pontificate and understanding, and I have to say it's there in my books from the beginning, you know, I always understood that's when Francis said back in 2014, he said he wanted to move in the direction of a synodal church of which Cardinal Martini had dreamt. And we all kind of went, oh, yeah, yeah, you know. But actually, now we understand what he meant and the radicality and the breadth and the depth of that vision. So to be invited to be kind of part of it uh, is just a great thrill and a great privilege. And I, <laughs> I say, you know, Frascati, some of us did say, you know, well, I hope a few of us are keeping a diary because... It did feel very important. It felt like we were part of a historic process. Mm-hmm. I've been saying, and you know, I'm a journalist, so I know I tend to big things up in terms of headlines, but I do think this is the biggest consultation process ever conducted in human history, mm-hmm. first of all. Second, it's the biggest ecclesial event of my lifetime. Because this is not like Vatican II. It's not a one-off event. That's the other thing. This is a call for this to become part of the church's way of operating. Now, to your question about why the decision was taken to have a two-stage synod rather than one stage, I think it's because Pope Francis read the document that we prepared, and he saw that it contains this very bold, very, very exciting vision of a synodal church, and that whole series of questions that touch on doctrine and touch on ministries mm-hmm. are raised, which will cause, or have already caused, uh, a lot of discussion. Now, These issues like the women's issue, the gay issue, yeah. those more neuralgic issues for some people. Yeah, and in a, because the document of the continental stage is saying, as a church, we have to be better at doing what Jesus did, which was to hold together two things. He defended the law, he defended truth. At the same time, he was radically inclusive and merciful. Jesus did it. It's not easy for us, as most of us to do it, but the church is called to be that because where people in these reports are, are very critical of the church, it's not 
particularly critical of church's teaching. It's the way that that teaching is lived, implemented, and so on. And above all, is this call to be listened to and for experience to be taken into account. People don't want to be just have laws and rules and doctrines applied to them willy-nilly without taking into account their experience. So the call is for, for a more kind of discerning church. So yes, that touches on all kinds of questions which are in the report. Yes, the role of women, uh, questions of ministry. Yes, indeed, LGBT, inclusion of uh, divorce and remarriage and so on. So these are questions which people get excited about and debate. And I think what the Pope realises is that inevitably there's going to be now a period of discussion. And there should be. It's right that there should be, and we shouldn't be afraid of that. Vigorous discussion. And inevitably there's going to be conflict. There's inevitably going to be disagreement. And the risk is of polarisation. And I think the risk is greater if the horizon is too short. So if everything was going to conclude in October 2023, the risk is that the sort of the temperature rises and we all kind of get out there and argue our case. Whereas by extending the horizon, he's allowing for that conflict, but to prevent it falling into polarisation, because what we can do is we can all disagree, we can all take up our positions, but then there's time for us then to really examine where we're all coming from, what's really going on, what's the spirit saying to us. Is there a new horizon here that neither of us have taken into account? And that's the beauty of synodal processes and communal processes of discernment is it allows for this, what the Pope calls the overflow. You know, when the spirit kind of breaks through our narrow, often, you know, we get into these ruts of disagreement. And in fact, I'm A, you're B. In fact, there's a C out there that includes the best of both of what we're saying, uh, which embraces both of our, but transcends it. And I think that's what he's hoping for in this process. So that's why I think he's extended the process, to allow time for a proper discernment and for the spirit to enter into the process. At the end of it, and I know this is a huge quest and we're running out of time, but the holding those tensions are there and you talked about Jesus saying, like, I've come to fulfil the law, not to wipe it out, and yet that mercy and compassion is there. But nonetheless, there may be a time when the rubber does hit the road and maybe doctrinal things may have to change. Like for people who are concerned, say, about the gay issue of describing gay people as inherently disordered is just anathema to them. Do you think a time will come when, and is that the hope of Pope Francis, that people will move towards some kind of Mm. understanding rather than having it yet imposed on them yet again, Mm. but that there will be some kind of way of understanding that doctrine has to change, Mm. even though, you know, we've got the magisterium teaching with the census fidelium Mm. now, which is in some way what we're talking about as well, aren't we? And and gathering that census fidelium in a proper way. Well, we're we're talking here about something that's as old as the church itself, which is development of doctrine. Mm. Jesus teaches us leaves us with the deposit of faith. But then he says, it's the spirit that will lead you into the whole truth. Uh, And indeed, almost the first thing that happens after Jesus ascends is there's a big crisis over membership in the church, and they call together what's become known as the Council of Jerusalem. In Acts chapter 15, Jesus isn't there to tell them, but they do end up developing their own understanding of membership of all kinds of things Mm -hmm. as a result of being led by the Spirit in a effectively synodal process. So that is, I think, how change has always happened in the church and how it should happen. In other words, change doesn't happen by a pope being elected and just simply making changes. That's autocratic. That's that's not the model of the church. The church is the sensus fide fidelium, that the Spirit works through the people gathering together, listening to experience, But this isn't democracy. This isn't people kind of voting for changes. It's the bishops then listening to that 
and then the bishops and ultimately the Pope deciding what to do. Now, that might involve forming commissions, it might involve a new teaching document, it might involve all kinds of things, and ultimately it's for the decision takers in the Church, and that is ultimately the Pope, as I call them, the discerners-in-chief, to take those decisions. But the important thing is that they take those decisions having carefully listened to what the Spirit is saying through the people, and I think this is the key development and the key change. And the beautiful thing about this really what I love about synodality is that it is actually being faithful to what the church truly is because we forgot how to be synodal sometime around the 11th century and we in effect adopted some of the models of power and governance of the world that we ended up in these various crises. So in fact this is about returning to the very thing, the sources of the church which Jesus Christ himself gave to the church as an instrument of opening ourselves up to the spirit. Ultimately it's about letting the spirit guide the church and that's why I think it's such a beautiful process. In the material that came forward from all the different national assemblies, was there much emphasis on the poor and those on the margins? Because we've talked about the other issues that all get the headlines, but that's a huge issue, the division of wealth and the disparity of wealth. Uh, Look, there's a huge, you know, in the document for the continental stage, I mean, there's a clear admission, a recognition there that synodality is just beginning in the church. We're just beginning to learn how to do this. And there's been a failure, actually, I would say, in this first experience of of this kind of synod to really include the poor. I mean, efforts were made, but there's a recognition that we need to become much better at that. Because ultimately, it's when we open ourselves to the margins, because Christ speaks to us through the poor, that change really happens. So I think we've got to learn to become better at that. But of course, the issues of poverty, of inequality of the climate crisis, of war, of all, you know, the issues that people face across the world is all there in the report, because that's part of the context which has come to the surface. These are problems which the danger is we then sit around discussing how we solve them. Synodality says, first listen to the experience of the poor and hear what is resonating in you, what the Spirit is saying in that experience, because that will guide you towards the action that needs to be taken.